First Kings chapter 18, um, I want to encourage you to take some moments, uh, either today, sometime this week, to read the whole thing. Now, some of you are here today, either at uh, this campus or one of our other campuses or online, and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, this story may sound familiar to you because it is the, one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. It is Elijah and the big confrontation between him and the prophets of Baal and the awesomeness of of God on full display. I won't read the whole thing. just want to read a handful of verses. Pick me up in verse 21. It says this, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Pay attention to this, and the people did not answer him a word. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, notice the change. Change. They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Will you pray with me? God, we bless you in this place today. We thank you for all that you're doing in and through this church. We thank you for the leadership, Lord God. We thank you for the people. We thank you for every life that you have saved, for every baptism for the way that you're adding to the church, Lord Jesus, for the marriages that you are saving and strengthening, Lord God, for the way that you are investing and molding and shaping, Lord God, our young people. They're not just the church of tomorrow. They're very much the church of today. God, we thank you. Now, Lord God, these people do not need to hear the thoughts of a middle-aged man. They need to hear from a timeless, eternal God. We need a word from you today as we talk about change. And so, Lord God, uh, would you stand in my body, think with my mind, and speak with my tongue those things you would have us know, say, and do. Give us something plain and practical that we might be bettered in our journey of faith with you and might be, Lord God, all that you've called us to be. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Several years ago, it's a long story, I don't really have time to get into, but I was leading a church there uh, in Memphis, and like uh, this church, we just believed that the Lord hadn't called us just to have church, the Lord actually called us to be the church. Parenthetically, there's too many churches having church, and not enough churches being church. We actually believe that the litmus test of whether or not we're being the church is, if we were to close down today, would the community notice and miss us? I think that's a good litmus test for even as you gauge the effectiveness of your walk with Christ where you live. If you were to, live out, if you were to move out of that apartment today, would people notice and grieve your loss? 
Would there be a, a spiritual void that's left there because you lived on mission? If you were to move out of your cul-de-sac, out of your subdivision, would, would there be a sense of loss in that community because you didn't live in that house just as a means of comfort, but you actually saw your neighborhood as your mission field for the glory and honor of God? God hasn't just called you and I to have church. He's actually called us to be the church. That's the call of God in our lives. And so part of what that meant for us as we were uh, just trying to live on mission in Memphis is we looked for opportunities to do justice and mercy. And there was a cemetery that was being run by a denomination in, uh, in Memphis at the time, and that denomination had fallen on hard times. They weren't able to care for it anymore, so we as a young church says, we'll jump in and care for it. And so I remember our first time over there, walking the grounds of that cemetery and being overwhelmed. Uh, there were many sections of the cemetery where it, where it looked like the grass hadn't been cut in forever. Uh, I saw abandoned cars. There was drug paraphernalia. Uh, there was trash all over the place, and so we rolled up our sleeves and went about the business of doing justice and mercy and, and caring for this cemetery. I'll never forget my first time there. I saw a site that is indelibly etched across the contours of my mind. I, I saw a grave that had literally been turned on its side, and the culprit was a large towering oak tree. Now, we know how this happened at at one point, there was a little tiny acorn in the ground next to that tomb. And over the years, over the decades, this acorn sprouted and it became this towering oak tree that changed things around it. I remember looking at that oak tree and, and immediately I thought of my own life and how there are many times in my own life in which I... I felt like this acorn, small and insignificant, overwhelmed by situations, circumstances, and patterns of behavior in my own life, if I can be honest with you. And I wondered if I was going to ever see change in my life. And just at that moment, I thought of this verse. It's in the Bible. If you haven't read it, I want to encourage you to read it, and maybe to not just read it, but to memorize it. It is a verse in the Bible where God makes a declaration over everyone who has named the name of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61.3, he calls us oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness. I love that image. When we got saved, God put the acorn of the gospel into our hearts and lives. When we got saved, uh, it is said in the Bible that we were justified. One-time act, when you walked that aisle, when you surrendered your life to Christ, the Bible says you were justified, and that simply means you were declared righteous. Some of y'all are going, how in the world can God declare me to be righteous when truth of the matter is when I came to Christ, I was quite wretched. How in the world could God declare me to be righteous? Because he didn't look at you through the lens of your own decision-making. 
He looked at you through the lens of Jesus Christ. When you got saved, God uh, did a cash app in which he took the righteousness of Christ and wired it to your morally bankrupt life. And now he can authentically look at you and declare you to be righteous, not because of the things that you have done in your life, but because of what Christ has already accomplished for you on the cross. Anybody right now grateful to God that you are not the sum total of the decisions that you've made, but that he sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now watch this. Now that he's declared you to be righteous, he is now taking you on a process known as sanctification. Sanctification simply means that God is making you to be what he has already declared you to be, and that is righteous. God is taking you from an acorn to an oak tree. He is taking you in the process of change. That is why, hear me now, every Every legitimate believer should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their journey with Christ and declare two things. Number one, I am not already there. I have not arrived. I am far from perfect. Baby, you cut me off on the freeway, and if I hadn't read my word and had my cup of coffee, I might want to actually pull up next to you and speak to you in sign language. I, I have not arrived. That's why we used to sing a little song in my home church, please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. I am very much a work in progress. And yet, secondly, while I can declare I have not arrived, I should also be able to look over my shoulder and declare I am not where I once was. He is changing me for his honor and glory. I am a work in progress. Anyone grateful today that you are not what you used to be? He is utterly changing you, taking you from glory to glory. This year, my wife and I celebrate 25 years of marriage. 25 years. Pray for me, y'all. I didn't think this through. So my wife turns 50, uh, 50 um, um, uh, June 10th, and three weeks later, we celebrate, we celebrate 25 years of marriage. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be a good steward of God's money. Uh, so I, I want to I, I combinate, you know, I want to put them together. You know, I'm just trying to be a good steward, steward of God's money. And, and my wife nipped that in the bud. She, she said, no, 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 baby, I know you. These are two separate experiences in my life. Uh, any, any lady on my side in the house of the Lord today? Any? Y'all are something else, man. I'm trying to save some money here. Um, but, 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 but I've been asking her a very vulnerable question this year. As we just think about 25 years of marriage, we've, we've been together half our lives. I said, sweetheart, how am I doing as a husband? Well, she, um, <laughs> she gave me a list of stuff I need to work on. But then she said, but you're not as bad as you used to be. I'll take it. He's changing, changing me. As we talk about change, to be a Christian means 
I am on a journey of change. And I just want to speak this to you. I didn't even say it in the other services. I just sense the Holy Spirit needs you all to hear this. Be patient with yourself. I didn't say be passive. Be patient. God knew all of your failures and struggles and bad habits before he even saved you. And yet he still says, I want you. The Bible says of God that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, which means God is patient. He's taking you on a journey, a journey of change. When we come to our text today, you need to understand that if there's one word that, that really encompasses our whole passage, this scene on Mount Carmel, it is, it is the word change. He is wanting to take the nation of Israel on a journey of change. In order to understand this, I don't have time to run it all the way down. You need to understand where they are. In 1 Kings chapter 11, Israel does something awful. Under the leadership of Solomon, the son of David, the third king of Israel, Solomon introduces the worship of Baal, this false god, to the nation of Israel. Now, you need to understand this. When we come to our text, Solomon is no longer king. Ahab is king. He is called an evil king who is married to an evil queen, a woman by the name of Jezebel. They now take the worship of Baal that Solomon introduced to the nation of Israel when he was king, and now Ahab and Jezebel now make the worship of Baal the state religion. Now, you have to really understand why this is devastating, because because Baal is known, watch it now, as the storm god, which means he is known as the god who sends rain. Now, this is very important that you understand this because here is Israel. They are an agricultural community, which means this, they are dependent on rain in order to grow the crops. But instead of looking to God, who is the source of rain, to send the rain, they now divert their their eyes and attention from God and they put it on the false God of Baal and they are worshiping Baal, leaning on him to provide rain for their crops. Now this is very important that you hear this because one chapter earlier in 1 Kings 17, God says, okay, you want to look to false gods, you want to worship the idols of this world to provide you with rain, here's what I'm going to do. Elijah, you tell the people that for over three years, years, they ain't getting any rain. Now, let me just stop right here, come to your house, knock on your door, sit in your living room, and put my feet on your coffee table. Be very careful about the idols in your life. God has an uncanny habit of messing with things in your life that you are leaning on for meaning, purpose, value, and significance. God has a way of knocking things off in your life that you are leaning on as a way of getting your attention. It has been said, we often turn to God when our foundations are shaking only to discover it is God who is shaking them. So I'm just, I just want to be honest with you. You know what one of my idols is in life? I'm very much a performance-driven, success-driven person. It's not just that I want to be successful. I can craft an identity over that. 
You know how God dealt with me with my success idol? He blessed me with a child who could care less. <laughs> like, really, you, you ain't going to do no homework. You just ain't going to. Like, you ain't going to turn nothing in. Like, you're going to. You know how frustrating that is? And cussing and fussing. And listen, I still hold my kids to the standard. But God had to show me, will you still love him even when he doesn't perform the way I love you when you don't perform. So some of y'all are looking at your job. Instead of as your resource, your job has become your source. And so what God had to do to you is, okay, okay, you, you, you want to worship your job? All right, we'll just downsize the company and you'll get a pink slip. And now you'll be scrambling to find a job until you realize that your job is a resource and I am your source. Are you getting this word? Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, so this person in your life has now taken my, my place, single person. You done got all booed up and now they've taken my place. So I just have to break the relationship up. Okay, you're in a season of prosperity, and in your prosperity, you aren't talking to me. You ain't in your word. So let me just send the health crisis or allow the health crisis. Let me just rattle your cage a little bit until you get your priorities in order. Be very careful of the idols in your life. God has an uncanny habit of coming after the bales in our life. So now God says... Okay, Israel, you actually think that Baal is going to send rain. You want to worship Baal? Here's what I want you to do. Elijah, get all the prophets of Baal, that's 850 of them, take them up to Mount Carmel and call now my people, the nation of Israel, and I'm going to show them my awesome glory and power. Now verse 21. It says, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, here it is, how long will you, make note of this phrase, go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. This text is all about change. He says, Israel, you are limping between two opinions. This text is originally written in a language called Hebrew, and the idea in the Hebrew of the phrase go limping, here it is, it means to be on the fence. It means, it, it means to have one foot in the church and one in the world. It means, it means to have enough Jesus to be acceptable, but not too much to be fanatical. It, 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 is, it is this idea, and, and it is really prevalent down south, and I'm not making fun of you because I grew up in Atlanta, but this cultural Christianity where, 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 where I am not radical, but I'm acceptable, that, that I can lift up holy hands in church, and we ain't going to talk about where their hands were last night. It means, it means I can talk in tongues in an unknown language in church and with that same tongue cuss you out on the parking lot when I leave. It's, it's, it's the idea of being on the fence. 
I love what Pastor Jada said, even as she led us. It is this, this, this whole idea that I can have Jesus and. Jesus, Jesus plus. When in reality is that Christ plus anything equals nothing. But Christ plus nothing equals everything. Ever been there? Ever been on the fence at various seasons in your life? I have. The church at Laodicea has. That's why Jesus said to them, I wish that you are hot or cold, so because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The apostle Paul knows what it's like to go limping. In Romans chapter 7, the apostle Paul says, you know, I find myself frustrated, he says, because there are times in my life when I find myself doing the very thing I don't want to do, which is sin. And then he says these words. Look at them with me on the screen. In frustration, he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Body of death, that phrase. You know what that means? In the Roman world during Paul's day, if you got convicted of murder, one of your possible punishments was the Romans would literally strap to your back the dead, decaying, stinking corpse of the person you had just killed. They would chain it to your back, that corpse. They called it the body of death. And so you would go to the grocery store. You'd go to Whole Paycheck, I mean Whole Foods, to go grocery shopping. And there would be this body of death on you. You would go to work and there would be this body of death on you. You'd go to sleep and you could hardly sleep. You had this body of death. Paul likens the bad habits and the bad patterns in our life as a body of death. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, I want to be delivered. Most of us today came into the house of the Lord with a body of death on our back. body of death called some addiction, maybe, maybe an alcoholic, body of death, maybe a drug addiction, body of death, maybe a porn addiction, a body of death, maybe debt. We've got patterns. Now watch it. Elijah says to them, here it is, how long will you be on the fence? Don't miss it. And the people answered him not a word. Don't miss it. Their silence says a lot. Ever had a sin pattern in your life that if you were going to really tell the truth, yeah, on the one hand, I'm going back and forth. And that's the crazy thing. One of the ways that you know you're saved, let me just bless you with this. One of the ways that you know that you're saved is you can't enjoy sin. Be very scared of someone who says I'm saved, but they can enjoy sin. One of the ways you know you're saved, it's not that you don't sin. We all sin. But if you can just enjoy it, ever made up your mind to sin and you couldn't even enjoy it? Oh, y'all going to act like I'm the only one up in here. So there's this tension. 
So let's not be too hard on Israel. The tension communicates conviction. I'm I'm going back and forth. That's good. But now Elijah says, it's time to get off the fence. It's time to change. Do you want to change? And they're silent. Here's the question. Ever looked at a bad pattern in your life? And something in you says, yeah, I'd like to change, but I'm kind of okay with it. Ah, I know I shouldn't be talking to her. And I know I'm married. (laughs) But can we keep it a buck? I'm okay with it. Yeah, I know I got this drinking problem. But I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah, I know I'm in all kinds of debt right now. And I know I should be ripping up these credit cards. And, but I'm kind of okay with it. Can we be honest in the house of the Lord? You will never change as long as you have a I'm okay with it spirit. The first step to change is to go from I'm okay with it to I'm sick of it. You will never change until you get sick of it. Here's the principle. Change only happens when the pain to stay the same is greater than the pain to change. That's why some of y'all don't go to a dentist. Some of y'all's relationship with your dentist is, I'm going to see you when I need to. Can't nothing get us to a dentist faster than a toothache. We, we, we calling every dentist we know, get me in now. You only change when the pain to stay the same. See, that's why any pastor will tell you, I get these parents calling me all the time, you know, help, can you help my son? Or, or, or I'll get a wife saying, well, well, my husband's got this. I've learned to say as kindly as I can, do they want to change? Yeah. I can't help nobody until they are sick of the behavior. I got to hurry up. How do I change? You got to ask yourself the question, am I sick of it? So maybe someone, your prayer today is, Lord, make me sick of it. Because you will never change until you get there. Once I'm there, how do I change? This text gives us three quick things. Come on, y'all. I got seven minutes and 26 25 seconds. Three quick things. Here's what's interesting to me about this text. 
First Kings chapter 18, the people of God, they're on the fence. God says, it's time to change. Call them to Mount Carmel. Bring the 850 prophets of Baal. Elijah, you're going to be the only prophet of God that is represented 850 to 1. I want you to set up this altar. Now, what's interesting to me is God has an agenda. He wants his people to change, but notice how he does it. The way that he does it is he doesn't just give them a book to read on change. He doesn't give them a wonderful book like Atomic Habits, or he doesn't even give them the Bible to read, as important as that is. Nor does he preach a series of sermons on change, as important as that is. If all this series is, is a time for you to hear some messages on change, take some notes, if all that is, you will never change. Instead, it is so counterintuitive what God does. What God does in 1 Kings chapter 18, he now unveils himself in one of the most visually stunning miracles in the Bible. He breathes down fire from heaven. It laps up the water, laps up the altar, the stones, the wood, the goats. And when the people see the glory and the awesomeness of God, when they see, when they encounter, when they experience who God is, that now sets the table for change. In other words, here's the principle change, this is where we mess it up, change doesn't begin with our hands or our feet, it begins with our eyes. Wow. Let me help you understand this. Um, th there's a woman, uh, Dr. Um, Ann Thorndike, she's a physician at the Massachusetts General Hospital there in Boston, and she was frustrated one day because she's looking at the cafeteria there at the hospital, and she's like, man... We've got nothing but unhealthy choices. So she got permission. She didn't make a big deal of it, out of it. She didn't even announce it. But she got frustrated because when you check out in the refrigerator there at the checkout line was nothing but sodas. So she didn't remove the sodas. She just put some bottled water next to the sodas. Immediately, sales and sodas fell. Sales and water climbed. She didn't remove the junk food. She just put some healthy food right next to the junk food. Immediately, the sales in junk food declined. The sales in healthy food rose. Here's what she understood, and some of y'all are in marketing, you know this. It's a marketing principle. It's not necessarily what you offer, it's where you offer. Here's the principle. Whatever has your attention will have your actions. Change begins with taking inventory on what has your attention. Y'all, I hope this is a safe place. I've struggled with weight all my life, and it's, here's the culprit. It's these doggone Christian conferences. I go speak at these doggone Christian conferences. I check into my hotel room, and God bless them. They have these snack bags in my hotel room filled with good but godless stuff. It's Snicker bars. It's M&Ms, and I don't want these people to waste the Lord's money. So I end up eating all the Snicker bars and all that other stuff. Why? I can tell you whatever has your attention will have your actions. Some of y'all have gone to the grocery store and you've made your list and it's nothing but healthy stuff on it. And you're doing good until you get to the checkout line. Is it just me or is that little checkout line demonic? Because ain't no, ain't no you know, peanuts or bananas or healthy stuff. All of a sudden you're just doing the Lord's work and that Reese's peanut butter cup done jumped off in your cart. Why? Because you understand whatever has your attention has your actions. Have you been in the quietness of your own home just talking to your roommate about a new pair of shoes you would love to get? You're just minding your own business. A couple hours later, you just go on social media just to check in on what's happening in the world. And that doggone Mark Zuckerberg has been listening to your conversation because on your social media feed, 
are now those shoes you have just talked about and now you done whipped out that credit card and you're buying the shoes. Why? Because whatever has your attention will have your actions. When we talk about change, the question is, does God have your attention? Which means, here's where we miss it. Even in how we talk about change, we focus more on the negative than on God. I can't look at, I can't do, I can't. And you sit around thinking all day, I can't look, I can't. Well, you're going to look. Paul Tripp says it this way, will you look at it with me? Whatever has captured the awe of my heart will also set the agenda for the things that I desire, think, choose, say and do. The moral life of every human being is driven and shaped by awe, either awe of God or awe of something in God. That's why when we just go through this journey together of reading the scripture, it's not to check it off the list. It is to set aside time in my day where God, you have my attention. On the commute, I'm listening to good podcasts, good music. Why? God, you have my attention. And when God has my attention, he's going to get my actions. It's impossible to be filled with the spirit and engage in sin at the same time. Secondly, though, I love it. Change, yes, begins with my eyes, but it also involves my hands. Notice God doesn't just send down the fire. He actually says, Elijah, when we go about this journey of change, you have a role to play. Look at what the text says in verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Here's the key phrase. And with the stones he built, he built, he built an altar. When we talk about miracles in the Bible, they are at its core all about change. And what's interesting is in the Bible, for the most part, with rare exceptions, when God performs a miracle, he always does it in partnership with people. Elijah, build the altar. I'm not just going to do it. You play a role. One chapter before, the widow of Zarephath, she's about to starve. Give me your last little bit. I'm not just going to give you the food, but give me what you have. The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus doesn't doesn't just feed them. He says to the little boy, give me what you have. In other words, see, when we talk about change, here's the thing. There's two extremes. On one extreme, some of y'all are like, man, God, I'm just waiting on you to change. Just waiting, God. And God's waiting on you to do something. See, change is a partnership. That's why Philippians 2 said it this way. Work out your own salvation. With fear and trembling, that's our part, but it doesn't end there. Here's God's part. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, here's the principle when we talk about change in our lives. Look at it with me. Change is not just something that happens to us, but it is something we participate in. That's what I want you to understand. When we talk about change in the Bible... Here's the other thing. God always begins with the little that we have. Widow Zarephath, just just give me the little bit you have left. The boy with the two pieces of fish, five five loaves of bread. He says, just just give me the little bit that you have. 
See, some of y'all coming to 2024 and y'all are real type A driven personalities talking about, I'm going to run a marathon this year. And you ain't never run a day in your life. <laughs> Start out with little. Some of y'all, and I applaud you, I'm going to pray an hour every day. You ain't even prayed five minutes every day. Start out with the little. Now, I, I don't want to kill anybody's dreams. If that's what the Holy Spirit has said to you, then that's what you need to do. But you need to understand, God says, it's okay to bring me the little, and we can grow it from there. Finally, change that doesn't just be, involve my eyes and my hands. It involves my spirit. Notice with me, if you will, in the middle of all, this is the most important part about change. Elijah does this in verse 36. Look at it with me. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, here it is. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Stop right there. Elijah, in praying for change... Says, God, this change, let me say this different. I think our problem is most Christians are two-column prayers. You know what I mean by that? Column number one, we make the request. God, heal my body. God, save my loved one. God, give me that job. Column number two, I wait on the response. I wait on the answer. Two columns. Elijah brings in a third column. He says, God, I'm praying for change, but I want it done so that it's known that you are God. In other words, third column, God, this is about not just change for the sake of change. It is about change for your glory. Third column. Hannah was a third column prayer. She says, God, I want a child. But if you'll bless me with this child, I'm going to give him back to you. For your glory. Jesus was a third column prayer. God, please remove this cup from me, the manner in which I am to die. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Here's the revelation. Some of us have not experienced the change we're praying for, and it's not because God doesn't want to give it to you, it's because your posture is wrong. God understands that for some of us, if he gives us the change, that change will become a platform for arrogance where our boast will be in ourself. But when we add a third column that says, this is for your glory, now he knows we can handle and steward the change he will bring about because it ain't about me and my before and after shots on social media, but it is about the glory of God. So God, give me that promotion so I can give more money for your glory. God, bless me with that bigger house so I can do greater acts of hospitality for your glory. God, heal my body so I can live longer to testify to your goodness for your glory. But notice finally he prays this in faith. What Elijah is asking for, he's asking for God to send rain. What he is asking for is so big that the only way it's going to happen is God has to do it. If the change you are believing in can only be done by you, your vision is too small. 
And here's where we have to avoid what I call yeah, right prayers. Ever prayed something so big but something in your spirit even while you prayed? Said, yeah, right. Come on, come on, go with me, somebody. That's why James tells us that when we pray, we must not be like the double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways. We must pray in faith. And then later on in James chapter 5, it says this. Look at it with me. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He saw change. Why? Because he prayed, and not just prayed, he prayed in faith. story is told of a small southern town that was going through a horrific drought years ago. And they're going through this drought, and it's a devastating drought because that town was an agrarian community. That is, they lived off the fruit of the land just like Israel did. And as the drought just kept on and lingering, it was wreaking havoc, and farms were foreclosing, and people were moving out of town. Finally, one Sunday, at the end of his sermon, the pastor got frustrated and says, look, y'all, we've been going through this drought, and it's been wearing us out, and y'all got friends and loved ones who've moved I think it's time that we just gather together and pray. We're going to beseech the God of heaven tonight at 6 that he's going to send rain on our community. I ain't going to preach on prayer. I ain't going to talk about prayer. We ain't going to testify uh, about rain. We're we just going to get together and we are going to pray. Well, that evening, it was a typical southern, uh, southern summer evening. It was about 90 degrees outside, 90% humidity, not a cloud in the sky. And Deacon Jones was standing on the steps of the old church greeting people when all of a sudden he looked out the corner of his eye and he saw a peculiar sight. It was the oldest member of the church, Mother Mary, walking down the dusty road, but Mother Mary had on a rain jacket. Mother Mary had on a rain hat. Mother Mary had on some rain shoes, and Mother Mary had an umbrella as wide open as an umbrella could be. She gets to the foot of the steps, and Deacon Jones goes down and helps her up. And Deacon Jones couldn't contain himself. He says, Mother Mary, I just want you to know, I mean no disrespect, but Mother Mary, it's 90 degrees outside, 90% humidity, not a cloud in the sky, and yet I'm looking at you with this rain jacket, these rain shoes, this rain hat, and an umbrella as wide open as an umbrella can be. Mother Mary, why are you dressed that way? Mother Mary looked at Deacon Jones like he was crazy. He said, Deacon, my pastor said we was going to call on God, not my next-door neighbor, that we was going to call on God, not any human being, that we was going to ask God to send the rain. I figured if we was going to pray for rain, I might as well come dressed for the rain. Mother Mary gets inside and they start praying like they never prayed before, that God would open up the windows of heaven and send down rain. And about three quarters into the meeting, they heard the pitter patter till it sounded like literal cats and dogs hitting the pavement. They couldn't contain themselves. They rushed to the windows. They looked outside and there was rain. They were high-fiving and running around the building and the Hammond B3 organ started to pray, play and they were just just elated with all that God was doing, and then just like that, silence. See, it was a small southern town, and everybody had walked to church. But the only one prepared to walk home in the rain was Mother Mary. 
Oh, friends, don't you need to understand that when you come to God and you start asking him to change patterns and change things, you ain't talking to your next-door neighbor. You ain't even talking to your pastor. You ain't talking to some dignitary. You are talking to the God who said, let there be light, ex nihilo, and there was light. You were talking to a God who opened up the Red Sea, who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, who closed the mouth of lions. In the Daniel in Daniel's lion's den, who raised the dead Jesus. So when you pray, you better put on your rain jacket, your rain shoes, and your rain hat, and open up your umbrella. Pray in faith. You know, right now, back in May, my mother-in-law got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. If you know anything about pancreatic cancer, it's one of the most devastating cancers because typically they catch it too late. So we started praying and fasting. God, would you step in and heal? Praying and fasting and praying and fasting. My wife just texted me two days ago. She's with her mom in Arizona. She said, we're sitting with the oncologists, and he's shaking his head saying, the cancer is gone. Listen, listen. God is good even if he didn't heal her. See, that's the third column. God, God, I just want you to know, we good either way. But some of y'all, your faith is too small. What are you believing God for in 2024? That God is saying to you, it's time to put on your rain jacket. If you're here today and you're trusting God for a huge change, I mean a big change, a change of some pattern, change of some habit, or maybe it ain't got nothing to do with decisions. Maybe it's a, a change in a health diagnosis. Maybe a change in a child. But, but, but the change is so big that, God, you're going to have to do it. And I'm going to bring you my little. But you're going to have to do it. If that's you, would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray. I want to pray. I'm believing God for something huge. I'm actually going to ask the lady of the house, Lady Jada, to come and actually pray over you all. But as we step into 2024... God, I'm believing you for something. And again, for some of us, for some of us, our first prayer is, make me sick of it. But we want to pray in faith. As Lady Jada comes, I, I want you to do something. It's going it's to look a little hokey, but just do it in the natural as a declaration for what we're believing in the spiritual. Would you just, would you just do this? 
It's just kind of symbolic of you putting on your rain jacket. I'm, I'm just going to get suited up to receive what God's going to provide. Lady Jada, would you pray? Father, we are um, just grateful that you're a God that hears the prayer of your sons and daughters. Um, we come now, we confess every moment where we've had opportunities to say yes and we have hesitated. We confess every moment where we've seen where you were taking us and we refuse to go out of fear. And we lay all of that at your feet. Everything that contributes to the fear or the insecurity, the worry, the uncertainty, God, we just lay that at your feet. And we offer up mustard seed faith in this room today, God. It may not be perfect. We may not have reached the mark, as Paul says, but we've pressed toward the prize of the high calling we have in you. And so, God, I just pray that as we come before you, desperate and open, willing, would you even take the cap off of our faith? Even what we think might be um, a little bit unusual, would you just make it crazy, just audacious, so that when it happens, we can say it had to be the hand of God. It had to be the hand of God. And Father, would you just use us as your instrumentation for whatever song you're trying to write right now, Father? We want to just be vessels. We want to be willing. Would you just spring up a yes in our spirit for whatever you're saying next? There may be something waiting right now, a text message, a conversation when we leave this room, something that is waiting for us to say yes to. Whatever that next step is, God, we just want to say yes. God, would you make our, our prayer and our need for you immeasurable? Not, not something logical, not something quantifiable, but something that we cannot explain. We need you to show up in ways that just don't make sense. We need you to do things in us so that you can do things through us. There are families that need us, friends that need us, colleagues that need us, industry and marketplaces that need us. And they need us walking in the fullness of a yes to a savior who said yes for us. So Father, we offer that up to you and I pray right now against every whisper of our inner voice, every reminder of the enemy that this is not gonna work, that you're not good enough, that we're not qualified enough, that there's too much shame and too much guilt and what if and what if and what if. We shut it down in the name of Jesus, God, because faith doesn't need conversation, it needs belief. It needs yes, and that's what we pray for this morning. I pray that you would ignite something in every person in this room, every person watching online, every person at our campuses so that we can be a church on fire. Not just for personal gain, but for the glory of God in the earth. We honor you and we say yes. Thank you for not needing us, but wanting us, for using us as we are. May we glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.